I think God in his wisdom ordained that we would sing before we hear the preaching of his word. It's such a wonderful way to prepare, and I'm blessed by being able to worship with you all this morning. Well, if you don't know who I am, my name is Jacob Hatfield. I'm the pastor of worship and family ministries here at Northwest Bible Church, and I also serve as the church planting resident and have done so for the past year and a half or so here, and that's been a very good experience, and I'm excited to say that by God's grace, if everything goes according to plan, that we are going to launch a new church plant in Monticello uh, this coming year. And so it's been a great experience. It's been a lot of planning and a lot of work, but the Lord has been so faithful, and it's been a really exciting uh, process. And so this morning... um, what I'd like to do is we're going we're gonna to preach through a text like we do every morning, but as we do that, what I hope to do is use this as a chance to give a little bit of a motivation as to why I personally am so burdened to plant churches. Um, planting churches is something that we should all be excited about. None of us who trust in Jesus would be here if it weren't for church planting. If we go all the way back in the history of redemption to the book of Acts, we see the Apostle Paul and where the whole mission of church planting began, where he started his ministry and he started by establishing churches. And so all of us who trust in Jesus, all of us who have heard the gospel, we know that the gospel came to us through the ministry of the word and that that comes through the preaching of the gospel and that comes through the ministry of a local church usually and missionaries are sent from a church. And so in a broad sense, we're all here because of church planting. But in a more specific sense, I want to share with you this morning one of the reasons why I am so burdened and what kind of the motivation is why I want to plant a church. So I'd invite you to pray with me as we begin, and then we're going to look at a text this morning that has meant a lot to me. So would you pray with me this morning? Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of rest that your hands have made? All these things my hands have made and by these things they came to be. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Lord, do not let us, in our attempts to bring you a sacrifice of praise and worship, erect some sort of altar in our own strength. We know that's not what you desire. You do not desire the work of our hands. You've made everything. You own everything. What you desire are people who are humble before you, who tremble at your word. those who meditate on your word day and night. Those are the ones whose work you will prosper. So Father, as we come to you this morning, we come empty in some ways because of what the world has required of us and we come needing to be filled. So Lord, as we open your word together, I pray that by the ministry of your Holy Spirit and by the preaching of your word, you would fill us. 
And would we come away motivated and changed and ready to engage for the good of your church and for the glory of your name. And it's for the sake of Christ that I pray. Amen. Well, the Bible is full of contrast. I don't know if you've noticed this as you maybe read through the scriptures from front to back. You notice that the biblical authors use this tool of contrast to help us see what something is. We often see what it isn't. I think it was C.S. Lewis that used this tool a lot in his writing. Think about some of the contrast that we see in scripture. We see um, light compared to darkness. We see truth compared to lies. We see life held to death, good versus evil. Well, this morning I want to trace one of the main contrasting themes that I see in Scripture. And taking a couple of minutes, I want to review its origin. So we're going to go all the way back to the beginning. And then I want to stop in Psalm 1. It's where we're going to spend most of our time. And then we're going to jump to the book of Romans just very briefly to see the finality of this contrast and then make some applications for the church planting process. So if you know your Bible or if you at least know Psalm 1, you may have guessed that I'm talking about this contrast of the righteous and the wicked. To see the origin of this contrast, we're going to go back, like I said, to the beginning. We've just finished going through Genesis 1 through 11, if you've been here since the fall, we went through these first 11 chapters, and we traced the lineage or the line of these two seeds. If you remember Aaron going through this in our study, you remember from Genesis 3 on, we have the seed of the woman and we have the seed of the serpent. And we have these two offsprings that can be traced all the way through the history of redemption, the history of Israel. All the way through Jesus, and Paul identifies him as the seed, singular, the seed of the woman who crushed the head of the serpent in his victory over sin on the cross. Another way to think about this would be in terms of contrast, the righteous and the wicked. This language shows up even in the Genesis narrative when we read about Noah, who was a man of righteousness. In Genesis 6, he's called a man of righteousness. Peter identifies him as a preacher of righteousness. Again in Genesis 6, God looks down and sees the wickedness of man was very great. So starting all the way back in the beginning, we have this contrast of the righteous and the wicked. And Psalm 1 lays out for us in great detail this list of comparisons between the righteous and in the wicked. So if you haven't done so, I'd invite you to turn to Psalm chapter 1, the very beginning of the book of Psalm. And as you do so, I'm going to just make a comment. There's only six verses. It's a short psalm. And I think that all six of these verses serve a main point this morning. There's only one point. So if you're a note taker, I'm going to take it easy on you this morning. There's just one main point, and I think it's this. Knowing the end of the wicked keeps us on the way of the righteous. Knowing the end of the wicked keeps us on the way of the righteous. Let's read this text together. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. 
He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor the sinner is in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the ways of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now this morning, I want us to see this entire psalm through the lens of contrast. As we look at this in terms of contrast, I think we need to see not only the explicit statements, we're going to see this is what the righteous do, this is what the wicked do, but I want to also see the implicit things, and here's what I mean by that. When we read verse 1, for example, we see, blessed is the man who doesn't do this, doesn't do this, doesn't do that, but we should also read in that, this is what the righteous man doesn't do, implicit in that is that the wicked does do that. So we should be reading this in, in these terms of contrast. That's what I mean when we read in terms of contrast. So even though we're going to look closely, I want you to remember that this is the contrast between the way or the path. This is why we picked the Proverbs that we read this morning. It was talking about the path. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end leads to destruction. This is all kind of working together this morning. I hope you can see that. The way of the wicked, the path of the righteous. This is all working together. Knowing the end of the wicked, knowing the outcome of this should serve as a reminder to keep us on the way of the righteous. So let's look at some of the characteristics of the righteous man in verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, or stands in the way of the sinners, or sits in the seat of the scoffers. You'll notice right away this progression of walks and stands, sits. The sequence of verbs shows a gradual descent into wickedness. At first, one might walk alongside. It's almost uh, kind of as if you're just in the company or a, a loose association of these people. Then perhaps a little bit more curious, you stop and observe, maybe take a closer look and you stand there. And then, unable to resist, you sit, take up residence. These are word pictures to help us understand and be warned of the dangers that are around us. The way of the righteous man avoids these. And let me just say that if ever there were a time when it is unpopular to live out this verse, it's now. Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the wicked, or stands in the way of sinners, or sits in the seat of scoffers. Look at the world around us. Try bringing up a biblical worldview in your workplace. I mean, I know many of you work in a public education system like I did for 13 years. Try bringing up a Christ-like worldview in the secular workplace. It is not popular. And people are eager to shoot it down. They are eager to scoff. <laughs> How old-fashioned of you. How quaint. Oh, that's cute. So how do you deal with that? How do you become a person who is solid, who is rooted, 
who won't get blown over by the popular opinion of what our culture thinks. You don't want to be a cultural Christian. You want to be a Psalm 1 Christian. Now before we move on to the other verses, someone could raise an objection here. It could go something like this. This verse seems to be telling us not to associate with sinful people. But Jesus associated with sinful people. He ate and drank with sinners. He sat down with them. He stopped and did things with them. And aren't we supposed to reach out and spend time with them and do that? So how do we do that if we're not supposed to walk, stand, sit? I think there's a couple ways we could answer that. First of all, the language of this verse doesn't have to do with just associations. I think it has more to do with influence. Who's influencing you? It's talking about the kind of relationships that are influential. It's saying, blessed are those who are not persuaded to turn from the path of righteousness and follow after evil. I think as we move on through the text, it's going to give us the tools to be the kind of person that's not influenced by this as well. So let's keep going and look at verse 2. So we saw, blessed is the man who does not follow after these things, who does not get led astray by these, but, contrast, see, we're seeing these contrasts, his delight is in the law of the Lord, the Torah, the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. In contrast to the one who walks, stands, sits in the ways of the wicked, this man is the man of the word. His delight, his pleasure, his enjoyment. When's the last time you enjoyed the Word of God? I hope it was this morning or last night. His pleasure is found in the written Word of God. And I think it is no accident that the implication of these verses is that to keep oneself from the way of the wicked is to keep oneself in the Word of God. Are you, are you seeing that? You see those associations? Look at the text with me. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, but keeps himself in the Word of God. That's my paraphrase. Not in the counsel of the wicked, but in the counsel of the Word of God. That is a purposeful association that the psalmist is making for us. The verb meditates is very important in this. What does it mean to meditate day and night? Now, when I say meditate, some of you might think monks and hoods and friar tuck and the belt that goes around your middle. And I don't think that's probably what's in mind here, but if that's what helps you, then that's fine. I think um, when it says meditate, it's, um, the word means like ruminate, to, to study, to, to soak in to let it sit. And what about the day and night? When the Bible uses, when the psalmist uses, especially in this kind of language, and it uses this kind of like a bookend. And what it does is it's meaning that it's everything between those two things. So you remember other places in Scripture, for instance, um, from the rising of the sun to its setting, the, the name of the Lord is to be praised. Well, what that means is that there's not a time of the day when the name of the Lord isn't to be praised, Right? So what this is saying is from day to night, 
Let's get the text back here. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. What that means is from day to night, there's not a time when you are not under the effect of the word of God. This is a literary tool to help us understand. This is a bookend that's saying, okay, from this part of the day to this part of the day, you are to be under the influence of the word of God. You are meditating on the word of God. Side note. We're about to turn the calendar to a new year, right? Coming up on Wednesday. Have you planned out your Bible reading? You got a plan for what you're going to do? You guys remember what Jesus said about reading your Bible? If you failed the plan, you've planned to fail. Okay, he didn't actually say that, but it was pretty close. And so if anyone doesn't have a plan for this, I would love to help you get a plan. There are free apps you can put on your phone. There are plans that I can print out for you if you don't have a printer. This is so important. There are whole chapters of the Bible dedicated to the importance of the Word of God. This chapter, Psalm 19, Psalm 119, it's all over the place. So if you do not have a plan for reading the Bible in the coming year, I would love to help you with that. So please see me after the service. I would love to get you plugged into a good plan. Next, in verse 3, the psalmist continues with this comparison by using another illustration, telling us that this righteous man is like a strong, fruit-bearing tree. Let's look at verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Now, we get the picture of the righteous that is strong and lasting, A tree is sometimes used as a symbol of life in the Bible. Again, going back to our series in Genesis, remember that? And especially a tree by water. Water is also a symbol of life. This tree has roots that go down deep into the earth and are watered by the stream, and it produces healthy fruit as a result of this rootedness. Now, using this analogy spiritually, the righteous is the man who withstands the storms of life. And because he delights in the law of the Lord, because he meditates on the word, his roots go down deep into the Bible, into the word, into the ground, and he's not easily blown over. The fruit of his life is evident. And even when trials come, his life does not dry up. You know the kind of person who's not rooted. And any time something comes along, any hiccup in their life, and their life is derailed totally. You do not want to be that kind of a Christian. You want to be the kind of person that people can come to in a trial because they know your roots go deep, because you are rooted in Christ and His Word. Now, there's another place in Scripture that the same analogy is used. And I think it'll help us understand this. It's in Jeremiah 17. And often when we think of Jeremiah 17, I think think of, you know, the heart is deceitful above all things, that passage is found there. But before that, we read something really similar. Turn to Jeremiah 17 with me. So get through the Psalms, Proverbs, Isaiah, Jeremiah. If you turn a few books to the right. Jeremiah 17, and I'm going to start in verse 5. 
So we're going to see another theme of contrasting here. I told you this is all over the Bible, so I want you to see this with me. Jeremiah 17, starting in verse 5. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Hmm, that sounds really familiar, doesn't it? It's almost like there's like one author to scripture that wrote the whole thing. Both of these passages speak of the enduring quality of the tree's leaves as well as the consistent fruit bearing, despite the poor growing seasons that might come, right? And the spiritual applications are piling up as we read these. The contrast here in Jeremiah 17 is that of a shrub in the desert, right? We have this kind of, if you've ever seen tumbleweed, that's kind of what I get in my mind when I think of this dry, kind of choky brush. And then we have this strong tree that's growing up next to this stream. One is dry, bears no fruit. One is healthy and is bearing fruit. Um, the shrub is the man who puts his trust in flesh. You saw that. Cursed is the man whose trust is in man. And then the other one is the tree whose hope is in the Lord and in his word. Or to use Psalm 1 language, I think we're dealing with the righteous and the wicked. Again, we're seeing the contrast, seeing the righteous and the wicked. Notice also in both of these passages that this man is planted by the stream. I don't know if you've ever had a chance to see a forest that's been planted by a, like a land management organization. If you go up uh, like north of Big Lake, there's the National Wildlife Forest, and you can see pine trees that are planted in perfect rows. And we used to drive by that, and I'd ask my dad, how did the trees get in such straight rows? Because I was just under the assumption that maybe the pine cones dropped in these perfect rows and the trees just popped up. He's like, oh, they were planted by the management. I was like, oh, that makes sense. So it takes intentionality for a tree to be planted by a stream. That's why both of these passages say planted. It's not some willy-nilly scrub brush that pops up. There's an intentionality to this tree being planted by a stream because God knows. God knows what it takes to have a man, a righteous man, and he knows that it takes watering. He knows that it takes his word to raise a righteous man that will withstand the storms of life. A desert climate is not the climate for a healthy, strong, fruit-bearing tree. God knows that. He's the master gardener. So he plants us where he knows we will bear fruit. This is all working together. Now look at the end of verse 3. We move on from instructions and we see some consequences or the outcome of this kind of living. Look at this last sentence in verse 3. Whatever he does prospers. 
Now, how are we to think about this? Is this a promise that we just kind of blindly take to the bank? I mean, should you go ahead and open the new business and put Psalm 1-3-B on your letterhead and just assume that everything's going to work out good? I think to understand this, we need to understand something Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew. So you can turn to Matthew 7 or just listen as I read a couple verses. From Matthew 7, verse 16, this is what Jesus says. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus is saying here that it is normative to assume that a good tree should produce good fruit. And I think we we kind of understand this. It would be like us saying, if I go to the Coke machine and I push the Coke button, I expect to get a Coke, not a Pepsi. It's just saying we assume that this orange tree, I'm going to pick an orange off of. So what I'm saying is that to understand what this is saying, that whatever he does prospers, I'm saying we should understand this in terms of not necessarily just a blanket promise, but an outcome of a faithful life. So here's what I mean. In regard to the righteous man that we read about in Psalm 1, when we read that whatever he does prospers, it's a surprise to us. Why not? Well, because this is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. He doesn't stand in the way of sinners. He doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. He delights in the law of the Lord. He meditates on his word day and night. He's a tree planted by streams of water. He loves the word of God. And so we would not be surprised then to find out that whatever he does, the Lord prospers. Why would that surprise us? This is the outcome of a life of faithfulness, not A blind promise. You want God to prosper what you do? Delight in his word. You want God to honor the work of your hands? You want to be a fruitful person in the life that you do? Delight in his word. Delight in his word. This could be the poorest person you know, and yet God prospers him. Now, picture this huge, strong tree, perhaps an oak tree. We've got a lot of big oak trees around, or maple trees. We've got a lot of big maple trees around our area. Um, Picture the, the biggest tree you've ever seen. And now... The psalmist brings in probably the most absurd contrast, at least in this context, that he can think of. Look at verse 4. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. I don't know how familiar you are with chaff. Um, Chaff is a little outer casing around grain, like corn or wheat or barley or something like that. It's a little protective casing that goes around the kernel of grain. 
And during the threshing process, they would harvest the grain, they'd bring it to the threshing floor, and with a big rake kind of a thing, they'd beat it out, and the chaff would fall off, leaving just the kernel or the head of the grain, and left was just this little, you know, like when you eat popcorn and you get the little hole that gets stuck in your teeth? That's basically what gets left on the ground. And then they would just leave it because it's trash, and the wind would just, gone. That's the contrast to this huge, healthy oak tree, which is the picture of the righteous. And now we're contrasting the wicked. Are you getting in your mind this picture? Are you seeing that the writer is stretching for the farthest reaches for an illustration of how he can contrast how different these two men are? There could not be a greater contrast in his mind for these two. Remember earlier I said that this whole chapter is meant to draw a contrast between the righteous and the wicked. This huge tree, vibrant and healthy and drinking water by the stream and this dead, dry husk discarded and blown away in the wind. This is the picture that we're meant to see of the righteous and the wicked. And now because of this distinction that's been drawn, there's some consequences, some markers that need to be set. Let's read verses 5 and 6 together. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Charles Spurgeon commenting on verse 5 said this, Sooner could a fish live upon a tree than the wicked live in paradise. Heaven would be an intolerable hell to an impenitent man, even if he could be allowed to enter. But such a privilege shall never be granted to the man who continues in his sin. You see, the way that we live here on earth, the path we walk, the company we take, the counsel that we receive, all of that has bearing on our life. It has significance to us. The point of this psalm is not only to tell us that we should be wise about the way we live because it has bearing now, it's to tell us that this will have consequence on our future as well. Knowing the end of the wicked keeps us on the way of the righteous. The title of the sermon is Two Paths, Two Futures. And I want to tell you this morning that the testimony of the Bible, the testimony of this text is that there are only two paths. You are either on the path of the righteous or you are on the path of the wicked. There is no third option. There isn't. There's the way that leads to life and there is the way that leads to death. That has been the whole point of this contrast, is to inform you that knowing what happens to the wicked should serve as a warning. Knowing their end keeps you on the way of the righteous. Now look at this last verse. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This verse should bring comfort to every believer here this morning. 
If you are in Christ, you belong to him, and your way is known to him, that should be a comfort to you. Psalm 103, one of my favorite psalms. Verse 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those that fear him. For he knows our frame and he remembers that we're dust. The Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. What a gentle father we have. But just as this brings comfort to the Christian, for those who do not know him, this last verse should serve as a warning. Again, this is held in stark contrast to help us see the final and ultimate nature of what's being said here, that one day there will not be an opportunity for the wicked to practice their wickedness. It's not just that there won't be the wicked man. It doesn't say that one day the wicked man will perish. It says the way of the wicked, it'll be totally wiped out, which should terrify us and should motivate us. I told you that this was a text that motivates me towards planting. And I'm going to tell you why in a minute. The Apostle Paul adds weight to this, I think, in Romans 2. So I want to close by reading this passage. You don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read Romans 2, starting in verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up for yourself wrath on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking and who do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, for the Jew first and for the Greek, for God shows no partiality. We saw all the way back in Genesis where the separation of the righteous and the wicked began. And there's coming a day when there will be a final and ultimate separation. And every human being will participate. The reason I am so compelled to plant churches is because of this contrast that we saw in Psalm 1. Every person Every person will stand before Christ. And they will either be counted righteous because of what Jesus has done and because of his gospel, or they will be counted wicked because of their sin. The only hope that you and I have is the gospel of Jesus. And I want to preach that gospel. That's my motivation to plant a church, is because of this contrast. Is because of this coming separation. So this isn't just a passage in the Bible that we read and we go, oh, that's something else. This is a reality for me. This is a reality for you. For me, this motivates me to plant. So I want to ask you this morning, what does this motivate you to do? Not everybody's going to plant a church after reading this. I know that. But it should motivate you to do something. We all have circles of influence. We all have people that we go to school with, that you work with. And the reality that there are only two paths. 
and the reality that knowing the end of the wicked keeps us on the path of the righteous should motivate us to be so free with the gospel. Brothers and sisters, be free with the gospel. Share it. Make a plan for how you're going to share it. In the coming months, we're going to talk more about the church plant and how you can get involved. But for today, let this text motivate you. I'm going to pray and the worship team is going to come up and we'll sing a song and then I'll close us with a benediction when we're done. But let's pray together. Lord, I am so thankful for your word. I'm thankful, Father, for the truth that we read here, that your word does not hold back, that we, we read hard text, that there is coming a judgment, there is coming a separation. But God, I'm so thankful for Christ. I'm thankful that you sent your son to pay the price for our sin, that we do not have to stew in our sin and hopelessness, but that we have hope in Jesus. Thank you that you sent Christ. We've just had such a wonderful Christmas season of celebrating the birth of Jesus and everything that that means for us. And God, help this truth that we've just heard this morning to motivate us now for gospel ministry. Help it to motivate us, Lord, to be bold in our faith and bold in sharing the gospel. Would many people come into the kingdom of God because of the truth of your word? Oh God, make us a, make us a bold people. So thankful for your word, God. And as we close our service today, help us to worship now. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.